Hello and welcome to Rooted and Unwithered. I'm Cole Newton. And the following article is titled, Your Child is Human and 14 Other Parenting Principles. And I originally posted it on March 24th, 2021. As parents, we are commanded to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But how do we do that? You see, everyone goes through life with a set of guiding principles and presumptions. The big question, however, is whether we recognize them or not. My wife and I have no desire to float through life without considering what our guiding principles are, especially in the realm of parenting. Together, we have put down on paper how we aim to actively obey Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and we thought that it might be worth sharing with others. So I hope to expand on each point into its own post sometime in the future, but having them all together will be best for the present. So these are certainly not exhaustive, and I will undoubtedly be tweaked as our daughter continues to grow and we gain two more little ones. Therefore, I do not offer these up as an aged guru whose journey is complete, but as a fellow traveler pointing out whatever provisions or snares that I see along the way. Your child is human, a fellow image bearer of God with desires and fears, even as a newborn. Now, this may seem like a rather obvious point to make, but sometimes the most obvious things are also the most easily forgotten. Your child, at every point in their development, is a human, one who bears the image and likeness of God. So make a point of frequently pausing to consider life from their point of view. Newborns are perhaps the easiest example because at first they offer very limited feedback to their parents other than crying. This in turn makes the newborn stage highly stressful to parents whose main concern typically becomes how do you keep them or stop them from crying? Imagine, however, the stress of being a newborn. They are thrust into the world without any knowledge whatsoever and have virtually no ability to navigate or fend for themselves. They are fully and completely dependent upon others for everything. This entails far more than just having physical needs met. Rather, they are entirely ignorant of what anything is. Indeed, they are so comforted by their mother's chest because her heartbeat is one of the only things that is familiar to them. When we add the fact that they can only see about 8 to 10 to 8 to 15 inches away from them the question therefore is not why a newborn is crying but why they should ever stop crying personally this is why my wife and I don't believe that using pacifiers are generally wise i would be fussy too if i were in a newborn situation and i would not want to be pacified by having something shoved in my mouth i don't want to be comforted the golden rule, after all, isn't just between humans that can speak. Treat your tiny human ex as exactly that. A small, understandably fearful, overwhelmed by the novelty of existence, fellow human. <clears throat> Discipline is a way of life, not simply a moment of correction. I've mentioned this in passing in several sermons and articles, but it's worth discussing again in this context. Again, the aim and goal of Christian parenting is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Too often, however, we view discipline as the various moments throughout the day whenever we correct our children's behavior, whether through spanking or through other forms of discipline. 
While physical correction certainly is a critical component of disciplining a child, Proverbs typically calls it the rod of correction, discipline is so much more. While my wife and I wholeheartedly believe in the value of rightly administered spankings, corporal discipline, more on that in the next principle, we believe that proper sleep and nutrition are probably more important in the long run. Consider how you feel as an adult after a night of poor sleep and or an unbalanced meal. We might be lucky if brain fog and irritability are the only symptoms that we experience. If you as an adult that can hopefully manage your feelings and emotions reasonably well have a difficult time wrestling with such things, why would we think that, we wouldn't, that they wouldn't also affect children? We have noticed this to be true with our own daughter. While she is sleep-deprived or has consumed more sugar than normal, her ability to focus and control herself declines steeply. And it is an act of love as her father to guard her from and when it can be avoided, guide her through when it cannot be avoided, guide her through such stakes of intoxication. Discipline is a way of life, and it particularly begins with a bedtime routine and some good nutrition. Never use physical discipline without carefully explaining what the child did and how they can correct themselves. Before my daughter was born, my wife and I resolved that we would only give our children a spanking after we first told them exactly what they had done and why it was sinful. After the spanking, we would then express our dislike of spankings and we would then, in our unceasing love for the child and how he or she can be more obedient going forward. I can honestly say that so far in our walk as parents, we've consistently followed this pattern. I remain squarely unconvinced that timeouts are a better form of discipline. Spankings are quick, and when reconciliation immediately follows, the child is comforted by your commitment to love them. By the way, we hold to the view that the force of spanking is far less important than the consistency of it. Timeouts, however, seem to be subtly teaching the child that when you sin, I will leave you, at least for the moment. Personally, I believe that the quick and intentional process of physical correction that I described is much more loving and securing to the child than a timeout or other such similar corrections. Don't be legalistic about discipline. When it comes to discipline, the best strategy probably goes something like this. Consistency, consistency, consistency. After all, how can we expect them to behave if the rules and consequences are constantly in flux? Overall, 15 light swats on the behind are likely to be more effective at correcting a child than one large spanking after 15 warnings. Yet, as the child gets older, make sure that discipline does not become legalistic. Here's an example. My daughter has been going through a phase of being scared of the dark. So going to sleep has been a struggle for the past couple of weeks. One evening, I came home from an elders meeting at church to find her still awake in bed with the light on and reading a book. Being a fairly common circumstance at the present, I could have entered her room with a scowl and disciplined her for being knowingly disobedient, because we have discussed that in the past. However, she immediately threw the book on the floor and began to cry, admitting that she just wanted to stay awake until I got home. So in place of a spanking, I held her, assuring her that I understood her and that she still needed to be asleep. So we sang a hymn and she went to sleep. You see, the point of discipline is to guide them into the path of the Lord. So do not be so obsessed with following your own rules that you fail to minister to the heart of your child. 
have proper expectations, neither too low nor too high. Balance is almost always harder than jumping toward one extreme or the other, and expectations are no different. I know that it's incredibly broad to say that we must have proper expectations of our children, neither too low nor too high. However, again, sometimes the obvious needs to be said because once it's assumed, it's easily neglected. If we're not careful, we can either expect our children to act as adults or expect little to no responsibility from them at all. And both are not mutually exclusive. My four-year-old, of course, is not an adult. If she fails to meet an adult-sized expectation that I have set for her, her behavior is not the problem. My expectation is. Yet, I can also do her the harm of having my expectations for her too low. The danger of low expectations is much more subtle and therefore in some ways is even more deadly. In reality, I do my daughter no favors by treating her as less competent than she is or perhaps even could be. This, of course, means that our expectations must be constantly shifting as our children continue to grow mature, and it requires us to truly know our children, not just as they once were, but as they are now. Again, this is why raising our children is a life posture rather than a hobby or even a full-time job. Both hobbies and jobs can be set aside for a time, but when you are not with your child, you never cease being a father or mother. Don't let them do anything that makes you dislike them. This is a happily stolen principle from Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. Although Peterson is not a Christian, much of the book's wisdom echoes and applies biblical wisdom, particularly from Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. Nevertheless, you should read with caution, which I hope you always do. The best chapter, in my opinion, by far, is the one in which he discusses this rule. And I would even say that for a parent, reading that chapter alone is well worth the price of the entire book. So Peterson's overall argument is that if you, as a parent, allow your child to do either disobedient or socially inappropriate things that make you dislike being around them, you are setting them on a course for failure throughout life. He summarizes this the effects this notion the effects of this notion toward the end of the chapter by saying this, quote, If their actions make you dislike them, think what an effect they will have on other people who care much less about them than you. Those other people will punish them severely by omission or commission. Don't allow that to happen. Better to let your little monster know what is desirable and what is not, so that they become sophisticated denizens of the world outside the family. A child who pays attention instead of drifting and can play and does not whine and is comical but not annoying and is trustworthy, that child will have friends wherever he goes. His teachers will like him and so will his parents. If he attends politely to adults, he will be attended to, smiled at, happily instructed. He will thrive and in what can be so, in what can be so, so easily a cold, unforgiving, and hostile world. End quote. Explain and involve them in everything as you show them Jesus, a.k.a. discipleship. This sort of piggybacks onto some of the previous principles but expands on them beyond the realm of discipline. Remember that your, that your children are born with zero knowledge and you and your spouse are their starting point for learning everything. So don't take this marvelous time of discipleship for granted, especially since the world will happily teach your children its version of anything you neglect to teach. Christ gave us the command to make disciples of all nations, but our own homes are not excluded from that great commission. 
Indeed, discipleship begins in our home. Paul required elders to be able to, quote, manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? End quote. The household is the church in miniature. Godly families will lead to a godly church, while worldly families will lead to a worldly church, not vice versa. Thus, if you want to fulfill the Great Commission, begin by doing the slow and steady work of discipling your children, which means involving them in your life as you teach them. Give them responsibilities, not chores. My wife and I do not believe in paying children for household chores. After all, why should I, as a parent, give money to you, the child, for doing things that need to be done in the home that you live in? If our children want to make some money, they'll need to figure out a way to earn it. Our daughter, for example, is wanting to make and sell loaves of bread, which we wholeheartedly support. There's a great benefit in giving them responsibilities to fulfill, to fulfill rather than chores to be compensated. Since we eat most meals at home, most of our daughter's responsibilities are kitchen-related. Rarely do we cook a meal without our daughter contributing in some way. Last night, she cut the potatoes before roasting them in the toaster oven. I believe that such practices build familial connections because she is a real part to play in what we are doing collectively. Yet I see two large practical benefits. First, it gives them the joy of being competent. Every child wants to be competent. Second, it teaches them gratitude. When our daughter makes scrambled eggs, which is really the only meal so far that she can make from start to finish with a very minimal help from us, she gets the happiness of being able to actually make something to eat, and she gets to see our gratitude and enjoyment while eating her eggs. And in turn, this also gives her a bridge for understanding the effects of her own gratitude or lack thereof in other circumstances. If she calls a new food yucky, then we are able to say something along the lines of, well, it's okay if you don't like the way this tastes very much, but you don't say that it's gross. How would you feel if we called your eggs yucky? If they know the joy of thankfulness after serving others, they will also better understand the harm of ingratitude that ingratitude can cause. And of course, this all requires time, patience, and again, knowing your child. <clears throat> Teach them of God's provision through food. In case you missed it in the first the first two times, the goal of parenting is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So these next two principles center around moments that we use as natural points for instruction, instructing them in the ways of the Lord. Family meals can be stressful and messy. However, what better time each day is there to discuss the goodness of God? Blessing the meal can be so can so easily become an unthinking ritual. Yet with a little bit of intentionality, it can instead become a time of remembering the Lord's provision. After all, is not every bite of food or drink of water that enters our mouth a grace from our loving Father? And should we not teach our children this reality, especially when Jesus called himself the bread of life and the living water? Furthermore, we happily teach our daughter that she does not need to love all food, but she does need to try everything, especially the raw foods that God has made and the flavor combinations that his image bearers have thought up. She does not like peas or corn, yet we instruct her that God still made them for our good and our health, and so they should be eaten with thanksgiving. This also provides a wonderful analogy for reading the Bible. 
Not all portions of the Bible are as exciting as the book of Jonah, yet the whole Bible teaches us about God, and so we should receive it with thanksgiving. Of course, a child could grow up to be disciplined in their Bible reading without being disciplined in their nutrition, but why would we not strive to build a consistent approach to all of life? Show them God's glory in creation. Another everyday opportunity for teaching our children the truths of Scripture is found in creation. Famously, Psalm 19, David noted that an element of God's glory can be seen in the heavens above. Our God has created an amazing world for us to dwell within, and we should both enjoy it and consider his fingerprints within each design. The amazing documentary, The Riot and the Dance, is a great starting point for rewiring how we view the world around us. The host and narrator, Gordon Wilson, notably says in the film, to be bored in this world is to be boring in this world. And he does a wonderful job of teaching how the wonders of creation reflect upon the wonders of our creator, as well as our position as stewards of the earth. So don't let your children be bored in our father's world and encourage their natural inquisitiveness and amazement in the so-called little things. No fantasy until seven. This is easily the hardest principle for me to follow. In fact, I asked my wife last night whether she thought our daughter might be ready to, at five to read Narnia. I don't think she will be. This is a principle that my wife learned from the Montessori method, and we've adopted it because it makes sense to us. Year seven has a long tradition of being a milestone in childhood development. As one article notes, quote, but the age of seven has been considered the age where common sense and maturity start to kick in for centuries. In medieval times, court apprenticeships began at age seven. Under English common law, children under seven were considered responsible for their crimes. Turning seven can even be symbolic within a child's religious upbringing, as it is the age when the Catholic Church offers first communion. <clears throat> one way to figure out if your child has reached this age of development is to keep an ear open for any suspicious questions about fairies, Santa Claus, or the monster his older brother swears is living in the basement. While your child's imagination can still roam free, his belief in make-believe may start to fade. End quote. Seven is thus more of a mindset shift than an actual fixed age. Nevertheless, we want to give our daughter a solid grounding in reality before we ever introduce the concept of make-believe. After all, once they learn that Santa wasn't real, <clears throat> what's to stop them from thinking the same to be true of God? Of course, plenty of kids, myself included, still believe in God and were taught such stories growing up. However, the argument of, I did it and I turned out all right, is not very appealing, especially when we consider that more than half of all teenagers drop out of the church. Our family might be wrong, but the current pattern clearly isn't working out, so why not try another approach? No screens until double digits. This is another principle that I've gladly stolen, this time from Andy Crouch in his book TechWise Family, which is another book that you really should buy today if you have not already done so. His rule is to keep kids away from digital screens at least until the age of 10. Here's a brief explanation why. Quote, The biggest problem with most screen-based activities is that because they are designed to keep us engaged, we can learn them far too quickly. 
They ask too little of us and make the world too simple. To learn to play an acoustic guitar requires hundreds of hours of practice involving physical strength and stamina, the development of calluses on the hand, typically the left, that holds down the strings, the ability to hear tiny variations of tone and timbre as we pluck and strum at different speeds and angles to adjust our movements accordingly. A guitar app, on the other hand, vastly oversimplifies all of these dimensions of embodied music making, replacing them with a skill that is far more easily acquired and requires far less learning, end quote. He goes on to remark that a gift, that what a gift the lack of screens will be to our children, quote, this is one of the greatest, most radical gifts that we can give our children. Ten years free to be embodied human beings before we begin helping them to manage the complexities as well as the gifts of the screen-based world. Give them those ten years. And I believe many of the patterns that are overwhelming parents as well as teenagers and young adults, let alone the frustrations that teachers are experiencing with ever-declining attention spans and the capacity to concentrate, will be far more manageable. End quote. Putting this principle and the previous one together, no, my daughter does not know who Elsa is, and we don't think she's missing out at all. Remember that you too are under authority. My daughter is slowly moving into the age of reason, and a couple of weeks ago she justly asked why she needed to obey me. In other words, why did she have to do what I say instead of the other way around? So I took her to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. God says so, I told her. When you obey me as your father, you obey God. But I didn't stop there. I also brought her to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, telling her that God has commanded me to teach and to care and to take care of her. If I fail to do that, I'm sinning against God. In other words, I quickly wanted to point out to her that we should both be aiming at obeying God. But my obedience as her father looks different from her obedience as my child. Yet despite the differences, we are both in the same boat. We are both under God's authority. <clears throat> Keep this in mind as you demand obedience from your child. Do not make do not mistake dependency for trust. Your child, especially in his or her early years, is utterly dependent upon you. Yet do not make the mistake his or her dependency for trust. Many parents believe that it is only the child who must earn their trust. Trust, however, is not the default status of any relationship, and your relationship with your child is no different. Trust must be built, and it begins from the beginning. To return to this first principle, if you are more concerned about silencing your crying baby than meeting their need, you are already laying an unspoken foundation that you care more about how your child behaves than about how they feel and what they need. Now, of course, they won't remember those early years, but a mark will certainly be left, especially considering that the first three years are some of the most important years developmentally. Parents are not entitled to their children's trust, so earn it. And no, all the unnoticed parental sacrifices, particularly sleep and money, don't, care near, don't count nearly as much as you might think. As Christians, those sacrifices are made to the Lord anyway. I go sing to my daughter in the middle of the night because I want to honor the Lord in my parenting, not so I can remind her of everything that I did for her when she grows up. Instead, 
earn their trust by listening to them and actually taking interest. Some of my favorite moments are talking to, with my daughter in a coffee shop or while going for a walk in a park. Even at only four years old, she has a lot that she wants to say, and I want to hear it. Her trust is a privilege, not a right, and I'm resolved to earn and keep it. Never stop learning. This principle goes far beyond parenting, but it is also a good one to conclude with. If the responsibility of, lazy, of raising little humans in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is great, then why not keep trying to do better and better? <laughs> of course, the greatest stumbling block to learning is pride. Only the humble are able to truly look for help and guidance. In this regard, my wife and I are scavengers. We are always on the look for new ideas and strategies for parenting, whether from books, podcasts, or observing other parents around us. Although two of these principles were explicitly lifted from, other, from books of others, we don't lay claim to creating the others either. Somehow, we stumbled upon each of these thoughts, and even though we have forgotten most of the sources and probably the exact wordings, our mindsets were changed. So I hope that some of these principles will have the same effect on you. And I would also love to hear any parenting principles that you would like to share with me. Thank you so much for listening. For more resources for knowing and loving God's word, please visit bcnewton.co. And until next time, grace and peace. Peace.